Thank you for subscribing to the Shepherd's Church Podcast. This is our Lord's Day Sermon. We pray that as we declare the Word of God, that you would be encouraged, strengthened in your faith, and that you would catch a greater vision of who Christ is. May you be blessed in the hearing of God's Word, and may the Lord be with you. Studying the Bible is hard, because it's unlike any other book that you've ever read. It's difficult. It takes hard work, and that happens for a variety of reasons. Number one, I'd say that it's hard because it's an ancient book. It was written a long time ago. The earliest text that we have was written 1,950 years ago, and the oldest text that we have, which there's debate whether it was Genesis or Job, because both books were very old, 3,500 years ago. So we're reading a book that is very disconnected from our world. With ancient writers who have ancient worldviews, who have things on their heart that they want to say to ancient audiences that maybe we're not privy to. Then where they live in a completely different culture than what we live in. And you know what? Probably a good thing. Also, another reason that makes the Bible so hard to understand is that it's not just written by a human author. Yes, it is written by a human author. It bears the personality and the, and the fingerprint of the human author, but it overall, bigger than that, it is God who breathes life into his word, and, and, and it's God who writes scripture. It is God who gives the scriptures, not just to people in the time period that it was written. God somehow miraculously takes ancient text and makes them relevant to all people at all time and in all ways. Read any other ancient text and you will see the fundamental difference. Read the Epic of Gilgamesh and then read the scriptures. They are different. And because we have two authors, God and the human author, sometimes we can make mistakes in our interpretation. Sometimes... We can misapply or misunderstand and represent what God is saying. And this is where many people fail when they come to the scriptures. You see, there's two contexts in scripture. There's our context where we stand and there's the biblical context where they stand. And if you get one of those wrong, you're going to misunderstand the text. And the evangelicals have done this a lot in our day. Because what they've done is instead of saying, what does the Bible mean to the original audience? What did the original author say to the original audience and what does it mean? They skip that part, which you can't. And they sit down and they say, what does this mean to me? Well, before you can even know what it means to you, you've got to know what it means. And you can't know what it means if you don't know what the original author was intending to say to the original audience. So when we get to passages like Matthew 24, and we say immediately, this applies to me. This was postmarked to me. This is Jesus looking past the men who asked him the question, and he wasn't answering them. He was answering me. And when, and when we look at it that way, we get all kinds of sideways, like a southerner trying to drive a New England in the winter. <laughs> when we see Jesus talking about tribulation, we say, oh, that must be, it must be about me. 
When we see him talking about that we'll be handed over to the authorities, we imagine jail cells in the modern world where we're going to be handed over, where there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And we think, oh my goodness, there, there's wars right now. Ukraine and Russia must be a sign of the times. There's always been wars and rumors of wars, by the way. So is that really what Jesus was talking about? Earthquakes and famines. You look on the news. I guarantee you there will be one this week somewhere in some country, somewhere in your life. Sign of the times. And we live, if we do that, if we make ourselves the point of Scripture that it was handwritten to us and not to the original audience, if we do that, we will live one antichrist away from being zapped out of here and we will not be involved in the mission of Christ. We will be looking past life to exit out. That's one example of the evangelical error, ignoring the ancient context and saying it's all about me. That happens all the time today in Bible study. But the secular error is, is similar, but it's the opposite. The secular error says, this has no relevance to me in my life, and it's the ancient context alone that matters. This is what it meant to them. This is what they said. This is what their community believed. <laughs> but we're so enlightened now. It doesn't mean anything to me. So when we get to passages like homosexuality, we say, yeah, the Bible talks about homosexuality, but we've moved past that. Our culture now knows that there's nothing wrong with, with two men getting married or, or whatever, or, or a man changing his gender or a woman killing her baby. Well, we've moved past that, haven't we? And that's what the seculars do. They ignore the relevance that these passages have to our life, and they say that was cultural. And our culture has evolved so well that now we are in no need of these texts. So the evangelicals will minimize the context of Scripture to maximize the application. And the secularists will maximize the context and ignore the application. Now, I think evangelicals have created less error in their approach, but nonetheless, it does leave us in a flawed hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is not my uncle hermeneutic. It is the science of interpreting the Bible. Now, recently, I want to address this today because it's relevant. Recently, the church has experienced a great error in interpretation. And it's from the evangelical group. And it's from the evangelical way of seeing that the context is more about me and my life and, and how we feel. There's a man named Alistair Begg, who I absolutely have great respect for. I've learned a lot from his ministry over the years. He's Reformed. He's Reformed Baptist, so he's not quite perfect. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But he's, he's a wonderful teacher. He's been doing this for 40 years. And recently on a radio show, he was asked by a sweet little grandma who called in, and she said, my grandson, I believe I'm getting the details right, my grandson is getting married to a transgendered person. What am I supposed to do? And his advice was that, do they know that you cannot support this wedding? That you don't believe that the, that the Bible allows for it? Do they know what you believe about Jesus? And the, and the lady said, yes, they know. And he said, do they know that you can in no way ever countenance this marriage? Meaning that you can't look upon it with favor and actually call it a marriage. And she said, yes. And he said, well, my advice to you then is to go to the wedding and take a gift. And he missed it. 
all weddings are done before the face of Almighty God. This is not about whether we, we talked about this in the law of God earlier. When we try to take the honey of God's word, the truthfulness of it, and turn it into pond water to make it more palatable so that pagan people won't get offended by our actions, we do hate to them. We do not show them love. And this was surprising to me because this was not Joel Osteen, this was not Stephen Furtick, this was not Creflo Dollar or any of the others who, who charlatans who sacrifice the word every week for ear-tickling people. This was Alistair Begg. This is a faithful man of 40 years. And I'm not saying that this man is a false teacher and that you should avoid him. He has a long faithful ministry. I'm saying he got it wrong here. That the church of Jesus Christ has only one message for what a wedding is. And it is in the presence of God between a man and a woman. And that's it. To show up to it is to countenance it. And what he did out of love, out of pastoral concern, out of care, he elevated our context above the context of Scripture, and he, in kindness, delivered hate. I don't think he did it on purpose. I think we're all tempted. I think we're all tempted to misread the Bible to preserve someone else's feelings. So as we, as we start, I give you that example because I want to I share with you that Alistair Begg is, is not a heretic. Alistair Begg just needs our prayer. Pray that the Holy Spirit would help him see these things clearly. Because we know that he would not tell that grandmother to go to his grandson's abortion party. We know that he would not tell that grandson to go to um, a sex party. He's clear enough in his thinking to know that you don't celebrate sin, and yet he's missed it on this issue. So pray for our brother. But I bring up this situation again because I want to show the fact that interpreting the Bible is difficult. If we do not have a foot in both worlds, as John Stott said, we have a foot in the ancient world to know what God meant to the original author, to the original audience, what he meant, then we cannot understand what it means for us today. The Bible, exegesis, Understanding, exegesis means drawing the meaning out of the text. That happens in the original context. Application is what you and I are looking for. Amen. And we have to hold both tightly or we lose it all. And then we become one of the many people who just make the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. And that certainly does not honor Christ. Amen. Now today's passage I bring up this example also because in today's passage, both worlds intersect. You've got the world of the ancient and you've got the world of the modern, and they both intersect in a way that, that is rare in Scripture, in a way that's beautiful, in a way that Jesus is connecting us with the ancient context. It is beautiful and it's striking. So today we're going to see very clearly how the worlds connect, where our world meets their world, where Jesus, what he's saying, applies not just to them, but absolutely to us. So it's, if you will, go ahead and thumb mark John 17 as we, as we talk about what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about there's two kinds of sanctification. This is summary so that we can get into the text. 
There's positional sanctification where God positions us in relationship with Christ and we are sanctified. That work is finished. That work is done. You don't have to improve upon it. It is God who has done it by the blood of Jesus Christ the Lamb. He has made you sanctified in Christ. And yet, there's an ongoing progressive sanctification that we all need to grow in grace. And when both of those sanctifications are at work, the result of that text that we saw last week is that we will be a sent people. We will be a people who go into the world and who declare the gospel, the same gospel that the people in Deuteronomy 4 marveled at and said, what kind of a people is this people whose God is the Lord? When, when you are positionally sanctified by Christ, progressively sanctified by the Holy Spirit, you will be a going people declaring the good news of God. And that is background for our passage today. Because it's not just for the disciples that Jesus is saying these things. A lot of Christians maybe will treat these passages as irrelevant. That's just what Jesus prayed for his disciples. No, no, don't do that. Because he says very clearly that these things are for us. That the world that we live in can be turned upside down in the same way that their world was turned upside down when they did these same things. I'm convinced, and we'll see this later, the reason our world isn't being flipped upside down right now is because we're cowering and hiding as the church, and we're not joyfully declaring the gospel. All things are under the providence and sovereignty of God, yes and amen. But brothers and sisters, if we lived like the book of Acts, things would get crazy in a hurry, and God would use it for his glory. So today I want to do three things. I want to see how John 17, all of it, is not just about the original disciples. I want to see, secondly, how it's about us. And I want to see that there's two ways how if you will obey John 17 and what Jesus prays for you in your life, you'll see the world flipped upside down again for his glory. So if you will, let's read John 17, 20 through 21. Jesus says this. This is in prayer that he prays this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that so clearly here you have showed us that these are not just ancient passages delivered to ancient people that have no relevance to our life. Lord, we, we thank you that you've showed us here that, that the truths contained in these scriptures did not end in the first century, but echoed on into the second and the third and the fourth, all the way down to us who are recipients of the word of God through someone who came and told us. And if you look at the person who told us and the person who told them and you keep going back, you'll get all the way to the twelve. A faithful, steady stream of witnessing has happened since the first century where you have included us in the family of God through the proclaiming of the gospel. You have raised us to life in Christ by this wonderful gospel. And Lord, I pray that our world, like theirs, would be flipped upside down when we take these things to heart and we see the power of God moves through these ordinary and humble means. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Now, John 17 is clearly talking to them. Jesus is not looking past his disciples. He's not, you know, looking at them. They've fallen asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane at this point. He's not looking over at them and saying, pathetic. I'm going to look forward to some real great people in the 20th century, and I'm going to pray for them. That's not what he's done. Clearly, he's praying for them. His whole ministry has been about them. From the very beginning, when he called them to be his people, and he does this three-year ministry tour, back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee, he's with them all the time. He raised Lazarus at the very end of his ministry in front of them. He entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday with them. He cleansed the fruitless temple with them. He went toe-to-toe with the Jewish elite while they watched. He pronounced seven covenantal woes upon the city of Jerusalem and said, this city will uh, fall and it will undergo all the wrath of God. And they were watching. As he walks out, he gives the Olivet Discourse that we gave earlier. He went into the upper room with them and he ate with them and he sang with them and he had Passover with them. And he, then he led them out of the city to the Garden of Gethsemane and he told them, stay awake. They didn't, but he's been with them the whole time. Every part of Jesus's life has been with them. So obviously, Jesus was praying for them. He was praying for Peter. He's praying for uh, Bartholomew and Andrew and Simon. He was praying for John and Mark and all of the disciples that would come eventually, like Paul. And yet, what we also see is that he had more than just those disciples on his mind. He also had us. Verse 20 again, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. What a wonderful statement that that is. I don't ask for these alone. I ask for all who believe in me through their word. That includes us, Shepherd's Church. We are part of the all who believe in Jesus' word 2,000 years removed. Praise God for this verse. Again, last week we saw that A sanctified disciple will be a sent disciple and he will send out his human witnesses and that those human witnesses will pass along his word. That's how we got here is at some point somebody told us and we just happen to live in a very blessed culture where we can sometimes watch someone tell us on YouTube instead of in person. But at some point, the word of God intersected with your life like a greyhound and a jaywalker and you, it was shocking when it happened. And then you stood up new. We've heard the word because it's been passed down through the centuries by faithful witnesses. We're here today because of that. Missions is not about helping people go to heaven. That's a consequence of missions. Missions is about connecting lost sheep to the Messiah who prayed for them and who prayed blessings over them. It's connecting them to the blessings of Christ for all who he calls his own. So as we re-examine the high priestly prayer, we're going to do something that we don't normally do here. You know, you've heard the phrase, two steps forward, one step back. We're going to do one step forward, then two steps. No, one steps back, then two steps forward. We're going to reverse that. We're going to go back to John 17, 1, and we're going to look at all of the things we've already looked at, but now with a focus on how they apply to us, God's people. So it says he doesn't pray for them alone. I do not ask in behalf of them alone. Everything in this prayer, therefore, applies to us. That means the eternal life that he is talking about is not just to a first century church. It's to us. He prayed that we would have eternal life and that we would be called out of the world. God gave us Jesus for that purpose. 
that we will be saved from our sin. And what I love about this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying and he said, I don't pray for them alone, I pray for all those who believe. I believe he knew you. I believe he knew you by name. I believe he knew your face. I believe when he was praying, he was saying that one and that one and that one. I am going to save them and I'm going to bring them eternal life. And I'm going to draw them out of the world. How glorious and awesome and omniscient is our God. John 17, 2 says, All whom you have given to him, he will give eternal life. This means that all whom the Father gave to Jesus are secure. The question is not whether you raised your hand or filled out a paper or ran up to the front for an altar call. I'm not saying that you can't do those things. I'm saying that those things don't save you. What saves you here is that you've been given before your birth to Christ by God. You've been handpicked out of the cemetery raised to life and handed over to Jesus, who's now your Lord. And that happened before you were even born. Because Jesus said, I prayed for them and also for all those who came later. So you were saved, brothers and sisters, before you said, Lord, save me. Because you were already hand-selected by God. You got ran over by the greyhound in space and time. You figured it out. You were like... Look at me, I'm saved. And Jesus, with a smile on his face, says, I prayed for you 2,000 years ago. You were already mine. We are the spoils of Jesus' victory. Jesus went through everything he went through, all the pain, all the blood, all the tears, all the maligning and beatings. He went through all of them, and the gift that God gave him was you that you are his to shepherd, to care for. It's almost like if you look back in the Old Testament, the story of Jacob and, and Rachel. Jacob, you'll remember, he negotiated with Laban the, the price on how many, how many years he was going to work. It turned out he worked a little more than what the original price was. But he, it says he worked with a smile on his face. It said that, that he was so joyful the time flew by. And then Rachel eventually became his own through all of his labor, all of his sweat, all of his tears, and he brought her into his home and he made her his own. And Jacob was not a perfect man, but Jesus Christ was, the one who left his homeland and negotiated the bride price for you and went through his whole ministry, died a horrific death to purchase you and to bring you into his home. Brothers and sisters, you have eternal life because of the wonder working of Jesus Christ and not by your own works. We said last week, it's like a worm turning into a butterfly. I don't think the worm in the cocoon had a schematic out on how to weave together wings. Something was happening upon him that was, or her, I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a zoologist. Something was happening upon that creature that caused it to become a new creation. Amen. Something, if you are in Christ, has happened upon you and it wasn't you. It wasn't your power that raised you and changed you and made you a new creation. All this happened because the Lord prayed for you 2,000 years ago. The most powerful prayer that has ever been prayed. 
I don't know how many people are, have been Christians throughout history. Let's say a hundred billion. His prayer claimed for his own every believer who's ever existed in every age. What a, what a prayer. The second thing is that we will know God while we're in the world. You see, we often get this idea that now that I'm a Christian, I, I'm going to do something else for 40, 50 years until I go to heaven. Actually, that's not the case. Christianity, your salvation, is not the finish line of your faith. It's the starting point. Amen. Now that you're in Christ, great. Get your water. It's time to race. He doesn't say that I'm going to take you out of the world. That's it. You are going to be taken out of the world. You do have eternal life. It is going to abound into eternity. But while you're here, he says that you will know God. And that word knowing there is you will increasingly come under the knowledge of God. You will not be stagnant. You will not be complacent. You will be the kind of person who drinks from the knowledge of God and Scripture so that you can grow. Everything in nature grows when it is healthy. When you are healthy in Christ, you will grow in the knowledge of God. And it's not just intellectual knowledge or assent. It's not, I have memorized facts. We were, in, we were in Sunday school earlier talking about the aseity of God. And if we're not careful using words like that, we can become puffed up. I know what aseity is. Do you? Our goal in understanding the knowledge of God is to understand Him and to get to know Him and to be in a better relationship with Him so that we can praise Him and worship Him. Our goal is to be like a child who knows their father. When I was a kid, I had no idea what the technical term for my dad's job was. I knew that he cut down trees and he did something else, but he was like an arborist and, and he like oversaw job sites. I didn't know that. I was like, I really wish my dad was here right now so he could see this. I, and when my dad would come home, I would run to the door and be like, oh, I love you so much. I didn't, I didn't care about all of the fancy titles that my dad had. I just wanted to know him. That's the kind of knowledge that God has brought us into, the same kind of knowledge that makes your kid beat the door down when you come home to see you and to wrap their arms around your leg as you walk through the house looking like your leg is broken because you've got one toddler on this leg and one toddler on that. That's the kind of knowledge that David had when he ran after God. Jesus describes it as, as a husband and a wife because it's intimate knowledge. It's, it's, it's not scientific in the sense of, I know how many hairs are on Shannon's head, or I know every fact there is to know about. I don't care about those things. I love her. That's the kind of knowledge. If you don't have that, if you don't have that intimacy, if you don't have that desire to know him, pray the Lord would give you that, because that's what it's about. Jesus did not pray 2,000 years ago, the most powerful prayer that's ever been prayed for you to eke out your salvation with grumbling for 40 years before you're taken home. He wants you while you're here to know God thrillingly so. He wants you to know God in such a way that your toes curl and the nation scream. How do you do that? You pray that the Holy Spirit would help you with that because you need help. How else do you do that? I think one thing you do is you read your word. You spend time with God in the scriptures. You pray. Come to church. Jesus said, 
when two or three are gathered in my name, and in the context of that passage, he's talking about the church, he said, I am with you. I'll be in your presence. If you want to know the king, come to where the king hangs out. And he's here. He's at his table. When you come and feast at the table of Christ, you're being nourished by Jesus himself. The king has now prepared you a meal. Why would you miss it? All these things are means of grace for you so that you can get to know him and love him and enjoy him. And what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is not your job. What a shallow purpose. The purpose of life is not even your family. And a a thousand years from now, you will be forgotten and I will be forgotten. There's a handful of people on earth who've been remembered and mostly for bad things. The purpose of life is not those things. The purpose of life is to know and enjoy God. That's what redounds into eternity. That's the second thing, that we would know him while we're here. Also, that we would come under his lordship while we're here. That he has authority over every aspect of our life. That we don't get to do whatever we want as a Christian. Did you know the Bible calls you a slave? The Bible doesn't call you a a free man. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does say you're in slavery, but it doesn't say that you were delivered unto libertine freedom. It says that you were a slave of sin and now you're a slave of Christ. That means that there's an authority structure in your life. That means that what Jesus says goes. That means that you really don't have the authority to offer up a peep. Jesus says, I want you to do this. I don't really feel like it. I don't care what you feel like. Because the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth has called you. Jesus bought and paid for us with his life in something you could not pay for, you could not work, you could not do. Every aspect of your life is pure, unadulterated grace. Why is it that that we so reluctantly and begrudgingly submit to him? He gave us everything and how little we give him in return. And it's not one of us here. Brothers and sisters, it's all of us. Our flesh hates to submit to Jesus Christ. The thing that would make us well, the thing that would make us joyful, the thing that would, that would alleviate our suffering and pain, even if we're going through the worst possible torture that's ever been delivered to a human being, we would have joy if we would just submit to Christ and his vision for our life. And yet how reluctantly we do it. We sort of live like Burger King, which is gross. We want to have it our way. We invite Jesus into what we're doing instead of being reminded that he's called us into what he's doing. He called us to leave everything behind. He called us to pick up our electric chair and to follow him. You say, it's cross. You're right, but the cross doesn't really strike you after you've been in the church for a while, you look at it as a T at the front of the building. He called you to pick up your death, to die and to follow him, to die to your will, your opinion, and to become his slave. Christianity is not a democracy, brothers and sisters. Even though we live in a democracy, you don't get a vote. He is king. And you know what? We're obliged and blessed when we submit to this good king's rule.
That's the uh, third thing. The fourth thing is that he's called us not just to know him in the world and not just to submit to him in the world, because those are two different things. He's called us to also be faithful to him in the world. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask behalf on the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That's John 17, 9 and 11. Jesus is saying, I've pulled them out of the world for a purpose, not so they would be faithless, but so they would be faithful. Why? So that the nations who hate God would see the faithfulness of his people and they would repent. The reason that he did not save you and zap you out of here in that instant is because he has a purpose for you and your purpose is nothing short of that the nations would cry out to the glory of God based off of the faithfulness of you and the church that's why he's left you he's left you because he's got more people to save and he's left you because he's left you to be his witnesses and not begrudgingly I remember the first time that I shared my faith I remember the Lord laid it on my heart. I was in Alabama. Honestly, like, of all the places, it's not a threatening place. Everybody's really nice there. Everybody is at least culturally a Christian in Alabama. And I remember how much I fought God on that, how much I, I walked up to that person. I was just, I was just, I, th I think the Lord told me to share my faith with you, Jesus, and I walked away. I was faithful, I guess, <laughs> to what the Lord called me to do, but the Lord didn't call us to begrudging obedience. He called us to joyful obedience. That's the fifth thing. He called us to have joy while we're here because there is joy in obedience. There is joy in faithfulness. We tend to think about our slavery as something that I have to do, something that, that the taskmaster of Egypt is just like Jesus and he's going to be whipping me across the back and it's going to hurt and it's going to be painful. No! Slavery to sin in the world is misery. Slavery to Christ is joy. Slavery to the world is a lack of freedom. Slavery to Christ is where you finally and utterly get true freedom back. He prayed not for a portion of joy, not for a micro nanoparticle of joy, but for full joy. He says, but now I come to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He's not even asking you to muster up your very trifle joy. He's not asking you to fake it before you make it. He's not asking you to put on a smiley face and an Instagram little thing and, 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 and pretend like you're happy. That's, no, he's saying, I want you to have my joy. And where does Christ's joy most fully show up? For the joy set before him, he walked up the hill of Calvary and gave himself for us. Jesus wants you to have his joy while you are here. Jesus did not die and he did not pray this prayer for you to have a joyless faith. He not only prayed that we would have joy, brothers and sisters, he prayed that we would fill the earth with his joy. That the nations would be glad because of the gladness of the church. 
He also prayed that our standards would not be informed or conformed by the world. He said in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus assumed that the world was going to hate you. And he assumed in that you would have joy. He did not assume that you would say, but God, you don't know how hard it is. (laughs) Yes, he does. As he hung upon the cross and took the agony and the brutality of the physical punishment and the punishment you and I can't even conceive of, of having the world's sins or all of his elect people's sins poured out on him, the wrath of God poured out on him, the face of God turned from him, what you and I can't even imagine, it says he had joy. We are not to be conformed to the world. The world is not to look at us and say that they believe in that religion called Christianity. They are supposed to look at us and say, my gosh, whatever it is that they believe has made them different. You can't keep them down. You you talk bad about them and they'll bless you. You fire them and they'll go start a business. Whatever manner of evil you do against them, they'll bless and they will not curse. You cut them off in traffic and and they'll give you signs of the cross instead of other signs. I'm praying for you. Remember in the first century, Paul was arrested. What did he do? He sang songs. James and John beaten. What did they do? They ran away or they walked away singing. And they counted themselves worthy of of suffering for the gospel. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1? He said, it's a great blessing that you suffer for the sake of Christ. James says, count it all joy when you suffer trials of various kinds. Why is it that the Bible is so specific that joy can happen even in a joyless world? Because God is redeeming the nations. And the most powerful apologetic of the reality of Christ in you is that you would be joyful in suffering. It's the only thing that humans can't fake. Every other religion does not do this. When they suffer, they whine about it. That is what humans do. Only Christians praise God and worship him in the midst of awful suffering. And it is an apologetic to the nations of the reality of who Christ is. He prayed that you and I would not be safe. He did not pray that you and I would be comfortable. He prayed that you and I would have joy. He did pray that we'd be protected from the enemy. Praise God for that prayer. He said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Praise God for that. That's John 17, 15. He also prayed that we would be sanctified in the world. That was last week. That we would be sanctified in the truth. His word is truth. And that we would grow in that sanctification of the truth. And why? So that we'd be sent out into the world. You realize that all of this, every single bit of this, is about God praying blessings over you so that the world would see and come to know him? All of it. He gave you eternal life so that the world would see that you're not, you don't belong here. He called you to know God while you're in the world, to come under his lordship in the world so they would see that, to be faithful in the world, to have joy in the world, to have his standards, not their standards, to be protected while you're in the world, to cling to the truth while in the world. And guess what? After he sanctifies you, he sends you back into the world. And why does he want us to engage the world? Because contrary to popular Christian beliefs, God is going to win the entire world for himself. 
He is not going to cause this earth to crash in a blaze of glory. He is going to use his church to win the nations. That is what he says over and over again. And listen, church history proves it. Year one, how many were there? 70? Year 100, a couple hundred thousand? Year 200, about a million? I can keep going all the way through church history to now where there's two billion or so. Why do we think that all of a sudden that Christ's victory is going to end? Why do we all of a sudden believe that, that he's not going to use us to win the nations? God's plan from the very beginning in Adam was to fill the world full of worshiping people who are fruitful and multiplied to the ends of the earth. That's his plan. And brothers and sisters, through you, through you, he is going to flip the world upside down again. Again, you weren't made for your work. You weren't, weren't, you weren't made for big houses and vacations. You were made for Christ. And guess what? We don't come here today for you to listen to Derek and I do ministry. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the pastors and the elders equip the saints for the work of ministry. So where's the ministry? It's not in here. It's in the world. You've been called according to a purpose to declare the glories of Jesus Christ so that the nations would come home to Christ. And Jesus talks about this in the passage for today. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Amen. You want a two-step plan on how to turn the world upside down for Christ? Here it is. Number one, the church needs to have unity again. All the infighting, the backbiting, the gossiping, the hammering everyone else over the head because they don't exactly agree with us theologically has got to stop. Now that does not mean that we unite in error, and it doesn't mean that we embrace people's heresies. We don't welcome Unitarian Universalists into the fold. We don't welcome Mormons into the fold. We have standards. My only point is, is as we're growing in theological purity, are we growing in unity? It's an important question because Jesus says that if we grow in unity, it is our unity that the world sees. It is our unity that brings the world to faith in Christ. They see that. Jesus said, so that. The world will know that you sent me. The evidence, brothers and sisters, that Christ has been sent into the world and rescued you is the fact that we love each other and the world can't stop that. The example I've used many times before in the Colosseum when they were feeding the Christians to lions. Do you know why people in the stands were getting saved? It wasn't because they did a five-minute message with a hand raise at the end. The reason people in the, in the Colosseum who were formerly cheering to see blood and death were crying out in profession of faith to Christ is, it said, is because the Christians down in the Colosseum loved each other so much that they cling to one another unto death. And the pagans looked and said, look at how they love one another. And they were blown away. 
This is exactly what Jesus says. Because we don't live in a world where people love each other. Not really. People use each other. People abuse each other. And people aren't used to seeing true love among people. And why don't they see it among the church? Because as Jesus said, when they see that, their eyes will be open to say, God really must have sent his son. Look at these people. They love each other no matter what. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the world would believe. Jesus did not say in order to get the world to believe that we need to put on church circuses every single week with light shows and Game of Thrones chairs in the background and swimming pools and every other ridiculous thing I've seen in the megachurch movement. We don't do that. The world's not going to believe because of our stuffy theology when they come in here and they see how erudite we are. The world is going to believe in the reality of Jesus Christ when he sees the church living out what Christ said. So brothers and sisters, let's do that. Let us repent for all the ways that we've brought disunity in our families and in our churches. Let us repent of all the ways that we've lived in cowardice or in fear. Let us repent of all the ways that we've not done what Jesus prayed that we would do and let us turn to him with great joy. And let us leave here with great joy, a kind of joy that, that is addictive so that the nations may see Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you were sent by God to purchase your bride. Lord, we thank you that all throughout the scriptures, you tell us how you loved us, you purchased us, you redeemed us, you saved us, you justified us, you sanctified us so that we would be new people, new creations. Lord, I pray that we would not waste our lives here. Lord, I pray that we would not be new people, new creations in name only. Lord, I pray that everything Jesus prayed for his church would be true of this church. Lord, I pray that a revival of word, repentance, and joy would take over this congregation, Lord, so that the nations would have to turn their heads sideways with a sort of taco neck syndrome and have to reckon with what in the world is going on with those people. For the glory of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you do these things? Amen.